1: Right, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, another returning guest, another of our Young Voices contributors. He's been here before. Excited to have him back. Always like when I get a transport guy to talk to. We're going to be talking energy and environment more today. Uh, he's with the Show Me Institute out there in St. Louis. That's Missouri, for those of you from Logan. They call that the Show Me State out there. Uh, Jacob Puckett, welcome back to the program, sir.
0: Great to be with you, Andrew. Thanks for having me back.
1: How's things in energy land? Nice and calm, no headline newsmaking, nothing, <laughs> nothing real serious going on. Why are we on this topic anyway?
0: Well, you know, quite simply, the Biden administration is reaching for an energy policy lever that they should not be pulling. So they have their clean energy goals, and those goals or progress towards those goals is moving frustratingly slow, which you know, it's understandable, you know, other than inflation, what isn't frustratingly slow these days. But what they did to, to work around that is they turned to the Defense Production Act to speed up the process. Now, the Defense Production Act is a wartime measure to boost supplies critical to national security. It is not a genie that grants you policy wishes, which unfortunately, that is how the Biden administration is trying to use it. And ironically, uh, the administration itself is hampering the production of the very things that they're frustrated are not being produced. So it's all backwards how they're approaching that.
1: Now, let's zoom out big picture and then we'll come back into this a little bit because we always like to do context here. We want to turn down the noise on this sort of thing. There's a very old joke in politics, and there's a lot of truth to it, like a lot of jokes, that uh, Democrat uh, politicians, especially Democratic presidents and policymakers in Congress, their environmental policies only go as far as the nearest swing voter. Now, it's a little facetious, but there's some truth to that because part of what the president's fighting up against here is. He has a very loud, very progressive wing of his party. He he himself has moved more progressive as he's aged. He he's always kind of been on the on the edge of the middle of the Democratic Party. So he's got he's more progressive now than he was during the Obama years for sure. So he has all that going on behind him, but in front of him, he has economic headwinds. In front of him, he has a worldwide energy crisis. We have. Uh, the war in Ukraine that's messing up energy and food production. There's a lot of this that's outside of his control. But that old adage I brought up, that's why this stuff gets sticky in a hurry, right? Because people don't really care about energy policy until gas prices go up or electricity bills go up or we have a blackout or taxes raise or something. This is the political reality. Even though we talk about this in a policy world, you can't separate them, can you?
0: Right. And energy policy is one thing. Energy policy results uh, are what people feel the most. And that's a very good point you bring up Biden trying to uh, essentially have his foot on both sides of his party, trying to reach the swing voter who's you know, pretty upset and frustrated by gasoline prices, while also not trying to uh, essentially cross the climate lobby um, uh, on that side of the aisle. And you can see this tightrope walking that he's trying to do. On the one hand, he's trying to say that he's doing everything he can to increase oil production, to bring down gas prices. On the other hand, his uh, EPA is now considering further regulating the Permian Basin uh, in Texas and New Mexico, which is the most productive and lowest cost oil field in the U.S., which would only decrease U.S. oil production even further. So he's, he's talking out of both sides of his mouth.
1: We had this thing about a month ago now, um, Jacob Puckett joining us, where he wrote the open letter to the oil executives about the refineries. Now, to be fair here, the problems with refineries have been going on for decades. We haven't really built a brand new refinery since the late 70s. I believe we keep rebuilding them, remaking them, things like this. There's in there's institutionally built-in problems with our energy production. I know we talk about drilling and opening for There's more to it than just that because the refinery process is broken. The transportation process is broken. The reason Permian Basin, where oil is the second greatest export after football down there, is that way is because you can just drive up to it, get it, and drive away. And then the refinery capacity, the logistics stuff, your transport guy, that all plays into this too. So when we're talking about drills and leasing and things like that, that's just a sliver of this. If we can't refine it and we can't export it, it doesn't really matter, does it?
0: Right, you don't put raw oil in your car, you need to refine it and turn it into gasoline. Uh, Now you're right, the last time an oil refinery was built was the first term that Joe Biden had in the US Senate all the way back in, I believe 1973. Uh, So yes, this is a decades long problem uh, that the US has not increased its refining capacity anymore. As a matter of fact, we're going in the opposite direction. You have these huge companies who who run the oil refineries are increasingly looking at converting these to biofuel refineries. So you don't don't put gasoline and diesel in anymore like you used to, so you can get a different product. And the reason that they're doing this, I I think, is uh, they're seeing the political writing on the wall that um, this administration does not want them to, at, at the end of the day, increase fossil fuel production. So they're, they're understanding that they're not going to have the support um, that they would need for long-term stability, and they're, they're making decisions based on that.
1: Yeah, Jake, you joining us. Um, now, our friends overseas have gone to more extreme measures than we have. Um, Australia, Germany, France is even talking about it now, bringing back online some coal fire plants to try to uh, adapt to the energy crisis. I don't think we're going to be able to do that here because of our regulatory process. And when they shut down these coal plants, there's just no way to really restart those in any kind of because of the way they have to decertify them through the EPA. We don't have that lever. Is that why he's going towards executive action? We understand the mess in Congress in this election year, and we're probably going to have a split Congress for the rest of his term. Is that why he's looking at executive things that he can get his hands on, like pressuring the executives like DPA? like these things, because we just don't have the things like a parliament has, like, oh, we'll just fire the coal plants up. That's not happening here, is it?
0: (laughs) No, you've you've seen this for several presidents now. Uh, When they have their big, bold uh, policy initiatives that they want to get underway, but they don't have the legislative support to do it, what else do they have? They have their regulatory state and they have their executive actions. And and that's what uh, the president is doing by invoking the Defense Production Act And and there's a great example here of um, how his policy goals aren't really even on the same page. So with with the Defense Production Act, um, the administration would essentially be subsidizing mining for rare earth minerals. Now those are used for things like uh, battery electric storage, solar panels, wind turbines, cell phones, laptops, all sorts of digital technology and we don't really produce any of it here in the United States. Um, We have very strict mining regulations, much stricter than other parts of the developed world, Um, including uh, restrictions that the Biden administration itself within the past year and a half has put on this mining activity to make it harder to do. Now, when he wants more of it, I I don't know why he thinks he can just snap his fingers and subsidize it, Um, lift it up with one hand, push it down with the other, Nope. You, you need to get everything on the same page. Um, essentially, cutting red tape here is going to go a lot further than cutting checks. Yeah, And now, this is a reason to open the market, not keep subsidizing.
1: Yeah. Now, to be fair here, Trump tried this, too. He was kicking around the idea. You touched on it in your piece. We're linking to it in the show notes. Make sure you read the entire piece. Um, he was kicking around actually using DPA to subsidize and fire back up the coal plants. Now, that probably wasn't <laughs> going to be a good idea. There's two problems there. One is you've got to deal with the executive overreach of it. Number two is you got to deal with is as a good policy. So it's not just Biden, not to pick on him, but he's in the chair here. DPA, just for folks, let's make sure we got the nomenclature right. What was it actually designed to do? And what is it turned into? Because we've seen it now with, we saw during COVID, which was probably an appropriate usage of it. We saw it with the baby formula stuff, which was probably not. And then we see it again, raising with this, which definitely isn't. So just break it down for folks. What was DPA designed to be and why is it a bad idea for most of the instances that we're seeing it used now? The
0: Defense Production Act at its heart is a wartime measure meant to boost supplies critical to national security. Uh, It was passed back in the Korean War, I believe. And its whole purpose is to mobilize things uh, at a very quick pace that the government might need in times of a war. Now- Last I checked, we're not in a war, uh, and especially not with the things that, and, and you're right, not just Biden, but also Trump have been trying to use this for. And, and that's a great point you brought up with uh, the Trump administration, considering using the DPA to bail out coal plants. It just shows you how fickle DPA usage is. Uh, it lurches from one administration to the next, and it's it's the opposite of the stability that you get from sound legislation and sound regulatory decision making that you know, the, the industries in question need that to uh, need that to
1: thrive. Yeah, Jacob Hooker joining us. all right, we're going to take a quick break when we come back.'re going to continue to talk about these issues. We're going to get a little bit more into the regulatory state because I think a lot of folks still don't fully understand how powerful that is. And the power isn't just the power, it's the inertia. Of it. it just kind of lurches forward. More with that, our good friend. Jacob Puckett rejoining Heard tell from young voices more with him right after this.
0: Ohio ready for some quick mental health facts. Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition in the U S more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime.
1: Our friend Jacob Puckett, I was just telling him I'm trying real hard not to call him Chuck Puckett, for those of you from Fayette County. Uh, Welcome back, my friend. All right. Again, we like to zoom out a little bit what we're talking about. We're talking about the regulatory state here. Real quick, let's just break this down for a second, and then we'll get into the Supreme Court just recently ruling on this. The real fight within the fight behind the scenes here is with Congress mostly deadlocked for the most part over the last few years. The regulatory state continues to grow and continues to test its powers, and then the judicial has to step in. Describe the power of the regulatory state in these instances, especially something like the EPA, which is a massive It's a massive federal bureaucracy. It has an important role to play, but it's also a huge jobs program, and it's also a huge part of the government, and therefore, it's also a big political cudgel. Just talk about the regulatory state, kind of break it down for folks so they understand, like... The regulatory state is broken because it is filling the place of Congress, which is our elected officials, which is how the system is actually designed to work.
0: Right. When you're talking about big picture, long term, high impact uh, political agendas, that is something that ultimately should be left to the elected representatives of the people, Congress. In the absence of a functioning Congress, you get the administrative state you know, in, in the form of the EPA. Um, the Department of the Interior, et cetera, political appointees at the heart of it, uh, making those big time decisions that the Congress should be making. Um, You've seen it many times throughout the years. Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, uh, with the EPA considering uh, finding that the Permian Basin is not attaining sufficient air quality standards, Um, that's something that they can use as a cudgel to uh, essentially go after an activity that they don't like, oil production. Um, and you can see it through all sorts of other things. And, and part of the problem is some regulations are direct. They get right to the heart of the matter. Others are indirect. They find some tangential way to um, you know crawl into regulatory areas that they were never intended to be. Um, and, and we saw some of that uh, with the Supreme Court case, West Virginia versus EPA, where the EPA, uh, the Supreme Court ruled, essentially discovered that it had authority in in a statute that was written back in the 70s that nobody knew that it had uh, for the past 50 years. And they just discovered, so to speak, that they had it and then started to use that uh, to regulate beyond their authority.
1: Yeah, Jacob Puckett joining us. Okay. Okay. Is there any way to get Congress moving on these sorts of issues? We understand the political environment. The midterms are getting ready to happen. We're probably going to have a split Congress with a Democratic president and a Republican Congress and not a Republican Congress and Senate. Is there any hope of any kind of legislative push against any of this regulatory state in the near future? What we often see with a split Congress, of course, is they'll do some performative bills that they know won't pass, but they'll get it and make the other side fight against it, that sort of thing. But two months ago, we didn't think there's going to be any gun legislation go through. Who knows what happens the rest of the year? Is there anything anywhere in here where there's going to be any kind of compromise on environmental issues, on energy, on gas prices, on any of this sort of stuff? Well,
0: I don't know. The good thing, one encouraging thing to see is um, when when you have some federal regulatory agencies that do play an important role. Uh, for instance, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Um, fulfills a role that I think would be very difficult for uh, Congress to fulfill. It's good when you see elected officials interacting with those agencies, um, preferably in a bipartisan manner, if not the whole Congress, then a group of, of, of members of Congress and talking to them about these issues. Um, it, I do find it quite interesting that you do see a unified, largely, largely unified Congress Um, pushing back against the president's president's proposal for a federal gas tax holiday. Um, Even members of his own party are opposed to this. In my opinion, it's just a gimmick. I don't know if if, uh, that would actually have any real effect on passing lower fuel prices on to customers. Um, But that is one instance where you're seeing uh, unified bipartisan support um, pushing back against the bad energy policy idea.
1: Okay, so when we have a complex issue like energy, like environmental concerns, by and large, I tend to lean towards a you need more of an all of the above than a pet project solution.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We're seeing some movement on some interesting things right now. There's all of a sudden a re- renewed interest in nuclear power. We're seeing some states uh, actually change their regulations towards nuclear. We're seeing some actual serious investment in nuclear, which the thing with nuclear is it's, it's cheaper to produce energy, but the overhead to start it up is way, way high not to mention the regulatory thing. So we're seeing that. We know the debate going on in California about Diablo Canyon. Um, Do you see a real movement or is this just kind of a blip that maybe people are going back and reexamining things like nuclear in a climate sense of like, well, hey, we're waiting on all this new technology. We have this old technology that we can spin in new ways. It feels like there's some movement there. Is that noise or is there actually stuff on the ground to be uh, uh, enthusiastic about here?
0: I really do think this is a very encouraging trend that we're seeing. Um, Teaching an old dog new tricks, you've got these huge nuclear power plants that have been around for decades, and uh, lots of investors and developers and innovators are finding ways to essentially create smaller nuclear plants that are more operationally flexible. They're even safer, and nuclear is already an incredibly safe form of uh, energy production, And that they're and and they're more mobile and can be placed in, um, placed in areas around the country that you know you wouldn't necessarily build a huge nuclear plant there, a nuclear power plant there, but you would find room for a smaller nuclear plant. Uh, You've seen regulatory action on this. Even President Biden himself uh, is supportive of nuclear energy innovation, and you've seen you've seen the consequences around the world of neglecting nuclear power. Uh, like in France and in Germany, shutting down their nuclear plants consistently over the past decade has left them in a very vulnerable position, which is why, as you mentioned earlier, they're increasingly looking to turn back to coal. Um, So if we keep our eye on the ball with nuclear power, um, we shouldn't end up in a place like Germany is in right now. And uh, it's, it's a clean form of energy production. It's safe. And it's something that we need
1: more of. Jacob Puckett joining us. Um, just to loop back to your piece here in the closing minutes we have with you, you have a great line that you end this piece with. I want to quote it here. It says, the right process gets the right results and legislative and regulatory actions are key to creating a viable long-term playing field. We've already detailed it. Congress is mostly dysfunctional. The, story, the regulatory state by any measure is pretty much out of control. Um, that's why we have bad policy. We have bad... Um, excuse me, that's why we have bad policy. We've had bad process. So we've talked about the policy side of this. Politics is practical. How do we fix the process? Is it electing better officials? Is it holding them more accountable? Is it uh, political pressure through things like action committees and fundraisers? What's the practical side of this to get the lawmakers in line so that they're invested in having a better process and know the the voters are as well?
0: I think too often people... Um, especially politicians get caught up in the politics of now. They wanna do something right now. And, and, and that's understandable, good for them. But these, these legislative and regulatory processes are arduous, they are meticulous, and they take a long time for a reason so that they, they can withstand the test of time. Um, they can, these decisions can have longevity and create the stability that the industries that they're affecting need in order to have uh, a a viable playing field. Um, That takes time. It takes a lot of effort, but the durable um, energy policies that underlie lots of what's going on today. I'm I'm thinking of the clean air act first passed back in the seventies. The energy policy act passed back in the nineties that gets amended every few years or so. Those are long-term legislative achievements um, that underwent a lot of discussion, but that's also the reason that they're still around and they're still relevant today. But, you know, using the defense production act as a substitute for this, it makes no sense. The DPA is not a get out of jail free card and the Biden administration should stop treating it like one.
1: Well, it makes sense politically because they're just trying, like you said, to get um, our economic friends. We talk about all the time is like, you know, politicians are like the head coach and economics are like you know the general manager they're both trying to win but they're trying to do it in different levels the presidents are always going to need to win right now the next election whatever and it's going to butt against long-term policy it's the internal problem of in the system jacob puckett joining us one last question for you on this thing um when it comes to energy project everybody's obsessing over the gas prices of course but that's a lagging indicator there's a lot that goes into what you see at the pump What's the next energy crisis? Because people are talking about it. Is it the water stuff out west and the electricity out west and what's going on in there? It, let's assume fuel prices go down at least a little bit eventually, maybe gas on. Is it energy? Is it something we saw in Texas where the grid failed because the grid isn't being properly taken care of in a regulatory manner? Uh, winter's coming. So we're going to have, you know, fuel oil in the northeast, things like this. What's the next big energy crisis folks should be paying attention to before it actually hits?
0: Andrew, do you remember a couple of years ago when California had a couple of days of rolling blackouts in the yep. heat wave? Yep. So the the, National, the North American Energy Regulatory Commission has been putting out warnings for a couple of weeks now that you know a lot more than just California's grid is at risk for the same type of thing this summer. Uh, California's grid again with the drought, um, and then several midwestern energy grids, essentially covering from the Mississippi all the way to the Pacific coast, they're saying that uh, these grids are at a higher risk of blackout under peak summer conditions. So when there's a heat wave, uh, when a lot of people are trying to use air conditioning, you know, the blackouts might not just be in California this year. And that's because we've been shutting down lots, uh, lots of baseload, reliable power capacity uh, and replacing it with things that are not as reliable. Um, are we going too fast with this? Maybe we'll find out. Um, maybe we'll find out this summer. But that's that's what I'm keeping an eye on.
1: Yeah, Jacob Puckett. Great stuff. Great Young Voices contributor. He's out of the Show Me State in Missouri. Uh, let folks know where they can follow you until you come back to Tell again. We enjoy having you, your social media, what you're writing about. We're going to link to the piece we've been discussing here in the show notes. Make sure you read it and share it in its entirety. Let folks know where they can follow you until we see you again, my friend.
0: Sure. All of my articles, uh, I tweet from my Twitter handle at Jacob, R Puckett. that's Jacob with a K and, uh, Andrew, thanks so much for having me. And I hope to be back again in the future.
1: We will. And it's been funny, um, with the Supreme court ruling that you talked about, every single picture is of the John Amos power plant, but they always grab the one of the high school football field, which is right underneath it. So all those, so, and I know that field, well, we, you know, it's a, Horrible place to have to play football, but the mighty fighting dots of Polka High School. Yes, the mascot is the dots of Polka. <laughs> but anyway, it's just been funny because every single one of those pictures, that's the John Amos power plant in West Virginia, uh, famous power plant. So we will get you on about West Virginia one of these times, too, because there's a lot of interesting stuff out of EPA, West Virginia versus EPA ruling. It just came out yesterday as we recorded this, so we haven't had time to really go through it. Uh, so we'll have you back in a week or two. We'll talk through that because that's going to affect a lot of this regulatory stuff, isn't it?
0: It is. Yeah. The court uh, is trying to rein in the EPA and that could have wider effects as well.
1: It's an interesting time to be alive if you're covering energy and transportation, my friend. I love transportation. We're going to keep talking about it. Jacob Puckett. Great stuff as always, buddy. Appreciate your time. Have a good weekend.
0: Thanks. You too. Thank you, sir.